Maternal deaths are on the rise here in the United States. We also have a postpartum mental health crisis. Women comprise around 90% of the OT profession, and many of us have personally experienced the inadequate support that birthing individuals often receive. But too few of us have stepped back and asked, why aren't we, with our training in mental health and daily participation, helping individuals in the hospital after birth? Luckily, a growing number of OTs are not only posing this question, but also doing something about it. And my favorite part about this movement is that it is multidisciplinary. Our PT colleagues are advocating for our services as well. At the center of this movement is Dr. Jenna and Rebecca Seagraves. Both of these PTs worked on the commentary that we are exploring today, and we're excited to have them join our podcast after we review this article. To give you a sense of their commitment to lifting up postpartum OT, here is a recent quote from Rebecca. Rebecca said, my prediction is that occupational therapy will transform maternal health in the United States, end quote. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles, then invite on expert guests to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this topic of acute care OT and PT after birth, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. You are probably listening on a free podcast platform, but to gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT continuing education platform. So bearing in mind that this could count as a CEU course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is that you will be able to identify specific postpartum assessments that OT professionals can utilize. Our second is that you will be able to identify specific treatment approaches that would benefit people after birth. So let's begin by looking at this commentary, and then we will bring on Jenna and Rebecca to discuss how this information could play out in your OT practice. The article that we are reviewing today is called Initiating Occupational and Physical Therapy in the Hospital After Birth, Access, Reimbursement, and Outcomes. It comes to us from the Journal of Women's and Pelvic Health Physical Therapy, and it was published in 2023. So the article begins with this big picture introduction to the problems with postpartum care. The United States is the most dangerous country in the developed world for giving birth. From 2019 to 2020, the maternal death rate increased by 25% in Black women, 44% in Hispanic women, and 9.7% in white women. The current standard of care calls for discharge from the hospital one day after a vaginal birth and two days following a C-section. After that, postpartum women receive a single six-week follow-up with an OBGYN. The authors of this study say that this standard of care is inadequate. During their first six weeks postpartum, patients are at the highest risk for readmission associated with infection, preeclampsia, and cardiovascular conditions. And 57% of maternal deaths occur during this time frame. So what is being done? 
Obstetric care teams have been using early warning outcome measures to alert providers of physiological red flags. These measures include the Modified Early Obstetric Warning Score, the Maternal Early Recognition Criteria, the Modified Early Warning System, and the Maternal Early Warning Trigger. But clearly, these screens alone are not enough, and mortality rates have continued to increase. A much more holistic and proactive approach is needed. So how does this postpartum care compare with how other conditions are treated in acute care? In traditional acute care practice, OT and PT are routinely utilized to optimize function and safety, prevent physical and cognitive decline, and reduce hospital readmissions. However, therapy is rarely utilized postpartum, despite the multiple systems impacted by labor and delivery, which leads us to this paper and the author's call to action. The five authors of this paper, all physical therapists, call for OT and PT inclusion in the maternal care provider team. They believe OTs and PTs can use their discipline-specific perspectives to improve postpartum outcomes. This commentary offers a framework for developing an acute care obstetric rehabilitation program. And from this point in the commentary, they kind of go into the specifics of what this program could look like, starting with the role of OT and PT in screening. OT and PTs can screen patients for symptoms related to common causes of mortality as the patients perform activities not typically assessed by other staff, including functional movement and tasks that mimic a patient's routine in their specific home, community, or work environment. So starting with cardiopulmonary screening, in addition to screening patients during functional activity that mimics their daily routine, a heart rate recovery assessment should be performed 10 seconds or one minute following activity completion. This recovery is a strong predictor of all-cause mortality in both symptomatic and asymptomatic individuals. Looking at neurological screening, postpartum individuals are at risk for complications related to eclampsia, stroke, neuropathy, and epidurals. These can be associated with neurological injury affecting mobility, judgment, self-care, and newborn care. Obstetric nerve palsy also increases the risk for falling and baby dropping. Screening and treatment for these conditions is critical. Next is mental health screening. One in 10 postpartum women suffer from perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, including depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, bipolar disorder, and psychosis. Screening can uncover the risk factors and identify patients who may benefit from occupational therapy to improve recovery and prevent hospital readmission. Next is musculoskeletal and pelvic health screening. OTs and PTs can screen for pubic symphysis diastasis, sacroiliac joint injury, sacral coccygeal injuries, lumbar injury, pelvic floor muscle impairment, and perineal laceration. So that's our role in screening. And in the next section, they talk about the role of OT and PT in our obstetric rehabilitation treatment. The primary goals of acute obstetric rehabilitation include minimizing pain, reducing impairments, maximizing recovery, and customizing interventions to address specific functional demands. Here are some ways those goals are achieved. The first is diaphragmatic breathing. Acute care interventions that include diaphragmatic breathing enable relaxation, reduce anxiety, and decrease pain. 
Next is comprehension activity progression. OTs and PTs routinely provide comprehensive activity progression for acute care patients. Postpartum patients may similarly benefit from education on one, appropriate abdominal binder donning, two, positioning of self and newborn care, three, bed transfers via log rolling, four, alternative strategies for the Valsalva maneuver for toileting, five, body mechanics when lifting baby, six, safe ambulation, seven, scar massage of healed tissue, eight, is prone lying, nine, is activity tolerance with a vital sign monitoring, and 10 is energy conservation training. The next category of treatment is vital sign monitoring. Self-management techniques can be taught with a blood pressure monitor and pulse oximeter. The next category is pain management. Rehab interventions include down regulation via breathing, intra-abdominal pressure management, modified body mechanics, and proper use of abdominal binders. And finally, the last category of these treatment interventions is discharge planning. Education can be provided to patients regarding activity modifications and safe strategies for reducing adverse events during recovery. After talking about screening and then treatment, there is a section on the interdisciplinary team. Rehab professionals are well positioned to work alongside nursing, obstetric, and lactation providers. This article includes a helpful table on care coordination that I definitely encourage you to check out. We're going to talk about this a little bit more with Jenna too later in the podcast. And finally, this commentary ends with a cost justification for services. The reimbursement for acute care obstetric rehab can be perceived as a barrier to service initiation. To get a program off the ground in your hospital, reimbursement must be explored within your specific payer mix. However, it should be noted that maternity services are often profit-generating, and hospitals are often motivated to increase the attractiveness of their maternity programs. In their conclusion, the authors state that adding rehabilitation to hospital services after birth establishes a high standard of care for this specialized population. Providing high-quality, comprehensive postpartum care is an important step towards raising standards across the care continuum. Rehab specialists are encouraged to expand their services to the obstetric population in all settings in order to enhance maternal, mental, and physical health for pregnant and postpartum individuals. Wow, there is so much to unpack in this commentary, and I'm so thankful to be bringing on our guests, Drs. Jenna and Rebecca Seagraves. Rebecca Seagraves, PT, DPT, is a physical therapist and a women's health advocate who believes that everyone deserves access to an early and successful recovery after birth, pelvic surgery, and mastectomy. Along with Jenna Seagraves, she founded the Enhanced Recovery After Delivery, an obstetrics clinical pathway that maximizes mental and physical function during pregnancy and immediately postpartum. And Jenna Seagraves, PT, DPT, NCS, CLT, is a doctor of physical therapy with eight plus years of experience in physical therapy teaching and mentoring students. She is a board certified neurologic clinical specialist and certified lymphedema therapist, a published author and presenter at national and state physical therapy conferences. Jenna is also a co-creator of a two-day continuing education course for acute care occupational and physical therapists with a focus on maternal and postpartum population to reduce the risk of neurological or wound events. 
And as a financial disclosure, I do want to highlight that Jenna and Rebecca are the founders of Enhanced Recovery After Delivery, which provides a perinatal health specialist certification. They have a financial stake in this business, and we don't talk about the program on the podcast, but you can definitely learn more by Googling it, and I'll also provide a link on our show notes. We at OT Potential have no financial connection to this business. So without further ado, I will patch Jenna and Rebecca Seagraves into this podcast. Jenna and Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you here. I'm going to have you both introduce yourselves so we can get oriented to your um, voices. Hi, everyone. My name is Jenna Seagraves. I'm a physical therapist, and I primarily work in acute care, uh, and I'm very passionate about working with the peripartum patient population. Hi, everyone. I'm Rebecca Seagraves, and I'm also a physical therapist who specializes in women's health and pelvic health. And I work in the home, the acute care environment, and primarily with individuals after birth and surgery within the first few weeks of recovery. I am so just excited to talk to you about this commentary today. I have to share with you right away that my just like gut reaction as I was reading it was I felt a little like embarrassed that I did not see this problem and did not see this opportunity to help. Like I've worked in acute care. I've thought about building our acute care program and I never thought, oh, there's this whole wing of this hospital that we're going to, which I guess leads me to my first question. How did you both like see this problem so clearly and what made you do something about it? I think that's a really great question. Uh, To give a little bit more background about myself, I am a neurologic clinical specialist, and so the majority of the patients that I treat um, have diagnoses or conditions related to the neurologic specialty area. And so there were times where, whether I was working in outpatient neuro, where where I was seeing individuals who were coming into outpatient after having a stroke and upon doing the chart review, the stroke happened either during birth, during pregnancy, or shortly after birth. And so that was a first kind of red flag for me um, to kind of say, huh, but I, I viewed it more as, oh, this is just an anomaly. This is not something that is common. But then as I started working more in acute care, working primarily on the neurologic floors, even in critical care, units, I was seeing more and more readmissions to the hospital with individuals that were being readmitted within a day or two of discharge from the hospital after giving birth. And so now I'm working with them in the in the hospital setting, and they have this long road of neurologic recovery ahead of them, in addition to having a newborn at home. And so that, I mean, just from my unique perspective, I started to think, is there anything that we could do to prevent this from happening? Could we have seen them sooner and caught some of those early signs so that we don't then have to have someone readmitted to the hospital or have this extensive recovery ahead of them? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, it was actually during COVID where I switched from outpatient practice to inpatient to acute care. And all elective surgeries have basically stopped for a time period uh, because COVID really took precedence. However, individuals were still giving birth. 
And so around that time, the American College of uh, Gynecology and Obstetricians uh, put out a call uh, to really reduce the, um, the length of time that individuals were in the hospital after they gave birth. And so women after cesarean section who primarily had three to four days of recovery were now being given one to two days of recovery to where they can be in the hospital, be seen, and then go home so that they would reduce their risk of infection from COVID. And so within the span of three months, I had three first-time moms be readmitted to the hospital with infected cesarean wounds. And that's when we were called in as physical therapists because now they had wound vacs and now they had a lot more pain getting out of bed and they still had this newborn to take care of. And so I knew I did not want to keep seeing moms after the effect. I mean, just the mental health aspect of that, being readmitted to the hospital within days to weeks of giving birth, an immense amount of pain. I knew that there were other things that we could have done to prevent that. And so that's really what drove my passion. And then getting Jenna on board changed everything because now I had someone who could see these individuals when I couldn't cover seven days you know, with with me and my teammate who worked primarily during the week. Well, kudos to both of you for seeing this problem. It's so baffling to me. It's such, I feel like it's so top of mind for so many Americans, like our maternal care crisis. But for us, I think especially as OTs, not connecting that to our work has been a huge problem and not connecting that to what we can do. And I was so excited to be introduced to both of you and your work and just the direction that you're pushing us. It makes so much sense. It's so needed. We have the skills. I'm curious about just like the story of how this commentary came to be. Like, I hear that you saw this problem kind of on like a really granular individual basis. Like, that's one thing. It's a huge step to getting to writing a commentary about it. And like, being a leader of a movement around it. Like what was the journey from like seeing it really granular or on a really individual basis to this big picture movement? Yeah, so it actually was the second of two commentaries. Uh, Jenna and I partnered on the first commentary at the end of 2020. It was published in 2021 in the Physical Therapy Journal. And we knew we wanted to reach more people after that one. Uh, that was primarily focused on cesarean section because we saw the upside for potential of treating specifically this population because it was a major abdominal surgery and they had an unlimited amount of ADLs that they were returning home to in a very short period of time of recovery. You know, they weren't given the same kind of rest that anyone after even a gallbladder surgery was given. So we uh, partnered in Jenna contributed this amazing algorithm that she was able to use uh, in real time to, to guide occupational and physical therapists on how to educate the maternal care team on when to refer. Because that's what everyone's big question was. And we, through this commentary, were able to answer not only for the care team to recognize when a patient really would benefit from occupational and physical therapy services through Jenna's algorithm, but then also what to do now that when you're in the room. And so we had a lot of 
um, input from the first commentary on, well, what do I treat when I'm in there? Like I'm standing in someone's room. They just gave birth. What do I do? And so this commentary was, if we could give nothing else, we wanted to give basically a handbook in the form of a commentary to address every body system that you can imagine that's affected after birth. And so we broke it up system by system and focused on the cardiopulmonary system, the neurologic system, musculoskeletal system, and really guided therapists through the physiology of what's happening so that they can have a light bulb moment of what to do. Hmm. Yeah, as I was reading, I was definitely like, I can imagine having a template of a treatment note where I'm just hitting on all these things and kind of screening all of them. Jenna, did you create this algorithm with this paper in mind, or was that a need at your own facility? And again, what made you do that? Like, it's a big leap from like seeing an individual problem to taking these next steps. Like, what's special yes. about you two? Like, what's <laughs> what what's that driving force there? I'm really curious about that. Well, I think a, a, a really big piece of that is that we realize fairly soon that this is a this is bigger than us, and this is a movement that we cannot we really can't change everything as just the two of us. There are way too many hospitals, there are way too many individuals giving birth, way too many OTs and PTs out there. And we need others who support this mission and know what to do, when to do it. And so by creating the algorithm, the purpose of that was really to spread that knowledge to others to have a better idea of when is it appropriate for our services. So it's not only helpful for the therapist themselves, but it's helpful for the maternal care team because if they are looking at that algorithm, they can easily follow, does this patient fit any of these boxes that then lead to sending a referral to OT and PT? But it could also be useful for the therapist if they're just trying to scan through the, the lists of patients that they can say, oh, well, this one I know had dealt with um, a hemorrhagic event and lost a significant amount of blood. That's something that maybe an occupational therapist should now seize so that I can assess their activity tolerance. How well are they able to manage just the simple mobility around their home? And so that's really the biggest reason behind it is that it's not, it, this cannot just be done with a small group of people. We need, we need more and more people to realize the importance of this work. And by spreading that knowledge, that's, that's really the best that we can do for that. We're going to talk through some of the specifics of assessment and treatment uh, in just a little bit, but I wanted to give a little moment to ask you both, as you look at this commentary now, what springs to the top of your mind? Are you are you like the mission is still spreading the basics of what's included here? Is there something you disagree with now or something you're focused on for the future? I'm I'm just curious to hear. It wasn't published that long ago, but I feel like a lot is happening in this space. So just curious how you react to it now. I'm glad you're actually asking that question, Sarah. I think a lot about research is that because it takes so long to implement, like we're already starting to say that anything five years old is outdated. And and we just now got to five years of where you're starting to implement. And now you're looking for resources that are up to date on what to do. 
And so I realized this article is actually more ahead of this time, right? Because the biggest barrier, I think, is just getting people in the room. And so in hindsight, when I think of what I would probably add to this article was a section on just developing communication skills and confidence to ask why. Ask one, why is your hospital not seeing this population? What are the true barriers that your hospital is encountering? In the article, we had a whole section dedicated to reimbursement, but we're finding that it's more than reimbursement. Maybe as physicians that they, they don't really understand what occupational and physical therapy, you know, how the, how those two disciplines separately, not together, there's no OTPT, there's occupational therapy, physical therapy, how these disciplines separately can benefit this patient population. And then also to the therapists, just really understanding the physiology of birth and then the physiology of a surgical birth, which is very different, right? And so understanding the physiology really kind of enables the occupational and physical therapists to ask the right questions. And so I think about when we wrote this article, yes, we were giving a handbook on what to do and why it's, it's important, but I know the true barriers are, are even bigger than that. And so it's a future-ready article, but it also is going to probably fuel a lot more um, inquiry and studies and research on what really worked after we implement it. But it's just getting therapists in the room. That's really the challenge for us now. What about you, Jenna? I would have to agree a lot with what Rebecca was saying about the the article itself does not go into nearly as much about the importance of communication, really being able to understand the role that you have but then being able to portray that or articulate that to the physicians. And so something that I think would be helpful um, to also have in the commentary would be using positive language and how to make sure that you're not just saying, these are the things I want to do to prevent X, Y, and Z. It's more, how can we work together to achieve the best outcomes for for this patient. And so having more of a collaborative mindset, more of a teamwork mindset, not just I want to do this, I want to do that. I think if if we had m mentioned that within the article, I think that could be helpful so that others don't feel like, oh, I have to I have to put this weight on my own shoulders, but to recognize that they would just be adding themselves as a team member. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and that's ideally how all of our acute care settings work. But from working in acute care, there's definitely different cultures, even within the same hospital on different floors. And I agree that's such a critical piece of it and something we need to be so explicit about. I'm also curious, since this has been published, about success stories of, like, is this happening? And is it happening successfully? Like, I guess... Are we coming in and are we helping patients? And is the program overall working? My sense is you both have the pulse on like the national um, changes happening here. Like what's happened since this article has been published? Well, that is, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I can, so I, I would love to speak about one of the success stories that I know I, I played a role in and then 
sort of from that, I'll talk about more globally, more nationwide. But in Colorado, in one of the largest health systems within the state of Colorado at UC Health, um, I was really able to, with the help of, of others, I'm not going to take full credit, very much part of a team, but we were able to start a an inpatient obstetric program at the largest birthing hospital in the entire state of Colorado, um, which is part of UC Health. And uh, we were able to, within four months of starting this program, making cold calls to physicians, try, just trying our best to get our foot in the door, we were able to get automatic orders for cesarean section, which is a huge win. But we, I now know that the program is doing so well that now they're trying to implement automatic orders for large perennial tears. And then the ultimate goal is to eventually have this just be automatic orders after any birth, but that will take time. Uh, and then I'll I'll sort of let Rebecca speak about more of the more of the nationwide. Yeah, yeah. So since the article was published, we were actually contacted by an acute care rehab manager of a large system in Northern Virginia, and she said she used our article within a presentation to her admin level team and then to physicians. And so we now are working with a hospital system that has developed the first OT-led team over eight separate maternity hospitals within that health system in Virginia alone. Um, it's, it's one of our biggest wins. And the fact that OTs are leading it, just it really, I think, speaks to the point of the article was to not only break down the systems, but really get to the heart of uh, the maternal mental health crisis uh, that we're now seeing. Since 2022, uh, there was an article that published that really actually corrected a lot of what we wrote in 2020 and 2021, uh, where it was really focusing on the cardiovascular contributions to maternal morbidity and mortality, um, the hemorrhagic uh, you know, um, complications that Jenna said before, preeclampsia. And they're now looking more at suicide within the peripartum um, population. And so physicians are trying to find all these things. FDA, the FDA just approved a drug for maternal mental health or postpartum anxiety disorders. And putting occupational therapists in the hospital on the team has been an incredible when for physicians to understand, you know, the, the true true scope of what we can do as rehab providers, mainly through our occupational therapy leaders, because they're looking at such a wide range of, of behaviors, of beliefs, of support systems, of all these things that we don't necessarily see when we're just looking at function and mobility and strength and, you know, task-specific things. And so for, for us, this hospital system is just one of many that's going to start training their staff as a team, as an organization versus one therapist taking it all on by themselves, getting the training and then trying to do it all. That's not sustainable and it leads to burnout because now you're, you feel like you have to just see this population where acute care therapists are some of the most versatile therapists in our field. And so since this article, I mean, I have to say, I'm I'm floored at the pace at which which this is moving. It feels like we're we're creating history. Yeah, 
Yeah, you absolutely are. And it's interesting how I think that was my impression of it as I was reading it, where I was like, I'm so primed to hear all this. Like, I know the news about our maternal mental health health crisis. I know the news about our mortality rates. And I know what we can do as therapists. And we just needed you to like, take that and sync that all together. Um, Like we had all the pieces of information and no one had pieced it together for me like that. So I'm just so thankful for that. And I'm so happy to hear these stories of these hospital systems. It makes me want to go back in time and give birth at these places and (laughs) have an OTPT to talk to. (laughs) And what you were saying about mental health, that that was kind of where I wanted to go next was to ask about kind of like the get really granular about like what assessments can I think specifically OTs be doing? What do you see them doing? I think unfortunately, or I'm just thinking of my own experience postpartum where I felt like it was very overwhelming and not a ton of support in that area. And I left feeling just like stressed and overwhelmed. Yeah. So I see the value of an OT coming in and kind of focusing on mental well-being. But but what are the specifics of what you see rehab professionals doing in this like assessment screening area around mental health? Yeah, so I we teach about the Edinburgh postpartum depression scale and, and kind of like the more formal outcome measures that you would see more in the mental health environment. And time and time again, the feedback has been those feel overwhelming 24 to 48 hours after giving birth. You know, to ask a patient in the hospital to fill fill out uh, some of those surveys and go through some of their experiences. And from an OT, an OT actually um, gave us this feedback after taking our, our training. And, and she has a background in NICU care and what she had been doing even before uh, training uh, with us, you know, to specifically offer her services to the maternal population because she was offering it primarily to newborns, right? What she has done and what she recommends doing is just simply asking, how are you doing to the mm-hmm. mom? Like leaving it at that very simple, yeah, open-ended. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what what that's done now is it is telling and communicating with the mom that all of my attention is focused on you. Like I'm not here to coo over your baby. I'm not here to take the attention and the focus away from you. I'm asking specifically, how are you doing? And you're giving that person an opportunity to talk about something that might have been traumatic for them that happened at birth or might have been a birth plan that that went unexpectedly. All these things that we know impact the mom really early on. And then long term, having that open-ended conversation has been for her and then for other people that we've uh, given the same recommendation to a complete game changer. Hmm. That like subverts my expectations to hear you say that because I thought you were going to say something super standardized. But at the same time, over and over again on the podcast, we hear that really great therapists have the courage to ask an open-ended question. I think sometimes we're afraid to do that because we don't know where that will lead. But as OTs and PTs, we totally have the skill to navigate those conversations. We're part of a team. We have to ask those big open-ended questions and be okay with where they lead. Yeah, that's incredible to hear you say that. Thinking about the 
the treatment part of the paper. It went through the body systems with a history and acute care. I was like, yep, 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 I can do all of those. Um, but I was curious, like, what special training you think would be particularly helpful to an acute care therapist? Or do we have it already? Like, how have you worked with these hospital systems to talk about that? What special training is needed? Yeah, one of the, that's a great question. Um, one of the, I think, best parts about trying to work with this population is that the majority of the skills that are just inherent to acute care, physical or occupational therapists, you you would know what to do to, to complete a basic evaluation for this population. You know, if you read through the article, it talks about the importance of vital signs, log roll technique, incision protection, Something that I don't think we quite went into as much detail in the article is is the fact that acute care therapists really get a strong idea of the home environment support system that's that's in place. Do they have food insecurities? Do they have concerns regarding transportation? And that's where acute care therapists play such a pivotal role because they can make those referrals to social work um, or case management when needed. When it comes to additional skills, because those are all like very much within acute care therapist's wheelhouse, some additional skills that I think could be really beneficial for those that maybe haven't given birth, they're just unfamiliar with what newborn care would look like, or even what postpartum recovery is like, um, would, would be, you know, taking some additional courses that would include things like feeding positions, not that they're a lactation consultant by any means, but just to be familiar with what they are to sort of help prevent musculoskeletal strains or pain, different things like that. Being sure to review some of the lifting mechanics that tend to be very specific to newborn care, such as the car seat. How should they lift that if they've had a major surgery and they now have lifting precautions? Um, what are the best ways to repetitively lift their infant in and out of their bassinet uh, to protect their incision? And then some some may want to review the specific surgeries. So a cesarean section is a very unique surgery that goes into multiple layers, anywhere from seven to nine, um, depending on the literature that you read on that. And so what, what would that healing process look like? And what exactly are the tissues that are being in size that are being cut into? And I think that will help give a deeper appreciation for um, the importance of incision protection and reducing the valsalva during activity, um, things of that nature. So those would be some of the additional skills that I would foresee. I think I'll add to that. I think for me, I, and I've been very open about this, I've taken a ton of courses and nothing has probably been a better teacher than actually treating someone after birth. I was already a, you know, board certified women's health clinical specialist, right, in physical therapy. And I was shocked at just the acute care side of things of actually treating this population within 24 to 48 hours after a major abdominal surgery versus seeing that individual down the road with incontinence and pelvic floor dysfunction and all the things that we would see as outpatient pelvic health therapists. And so I really 
caution anyone in the hospital against loading up on a lot of courses before you've actually even walked into the room or maybe been consulted on a high-risk pregnancy case during their antepartum admission, or you've been consulted on a traumatic birth case. Having that experience will guide you on what exactly you need to focus your training on. And for some of our therapists who are not treating someone after major abdominal surgery in the hospital, even treating that patient population will help guide you on how to actually, you know, uh, provide services after cesarean section with the added component of self of self care and newborn care, and taking vital signs pre and post your regular for for general surgery patients will help guide you on the importance of how you can catch abnormal vital signs in this population that might be walking and talking already and totally at risk for preeclampsia before they go home. We know preeclampsia can last through the first six weeks after birth. It's not just a disorder that happens during pregnancy. It's a disorder that happens after pregnancy. And so just really practicing in a a major surgical population will give you a little bit more insight into treating this population just as early as possible. But then also treating the population is going to be your best teacher in terms of what to say, what to do, and then realizing the whole mental health component um, of their journey that early on and your role that you're playing. uh, It's the best teacher that you could possibly have. I totally agree with that. And I think that speaks to the strengths of a lot of acute care therapists. Like we are accustomed to being like, never seen this diagnosis before. I'm walking into the room. Like, and there's nothing that raises questions and thoughts like seeing those patients. So totally agree. And I think that plays to the strength of the therapist in those settings for sure. I'm curious as I'm thinking about treatment, three things I thought about as I was reading was sleep. I so wish that someone had talked to me about sleep in the hospital, nutrition, stress management. These are all within our scope of practice. As an acute care therapist, though, I never talked about any of those things. Is there an opportunity? Well, maybe it was bad. Maybe other acute care therapists are doing that and that's awesome, but that was not in my in my skill set. Is there an opportunity for OTs to be helping in those areas too? Or is that happening? Um, What are your thoughts on that? Okay, yes. Thank you for asking this question. Uh, Because it absolutely is. It's probably one of the first interventions you would actually do with this population. And so I love starting with the surgical population. I think uh, Jenna can can even uh, broaden this out to other patients that we've seen after birth. But with cesarean section, one of the things that I uh, primarily will tell OT specifically, is that this population is generally put in an upright position right after surgery to bond with baby. They're not actually educated on bringing their bed down to a flat position that would match their bed at home. And so if you can imagine any incision, imagine our post-total knee replacement uh, population with their knee resting over a pillow, right? (laughs) We all would just like freak out as acute care therapists. Like, no. (laughs) We don't want that neoflex position. But yet, our maternal population, after a major horizontal transverse cesarean incision, is now upright in bed holding onto their baby. So they have this anterior weight shift as in their arms. 
And often they're using the bed rail, they're holding their breath because of the pain to get in and out of bed. And so to give them a wonderful night's rest, and starting in the hospital before they're even discharged to go home, is having them practice lying flatter and allowing that incision to heal flatter and not in a flex position. And so I've had patients where all we've done is actually reposition and work on sleeping positions. And by, by the time the, the evaluation and treatment was done, they were asleep. It was the first time that they had actually been able to go to sleep, you know? So that's pretty incredible that as a therapist, you could actually give some, someone a restful night's sleep while they're still in the hospital. And then they carry that through their first night at home so that it's not a shock getting out of a flatbed without rails. Or it's not a shock and now lying flat when they were, they've been upright and their body has gotten used to that. Right. Yeah. I'm just thinking about this off the top of my head, but are we then setting by having women sitting up in the hospital so much, do they keep doing that when they get home where they sit in a chair and get a fitful, get fitful sleep doing that when they should just be laying down? I think I did that a lot and I had never thought about, oh, I should have just gone and lay down. And that's even without having, like I didn't have a surgical, I didn't have surgery during my pregnancies, but yeah, that would be a huge blessing to start that early. Absolutely. And I, th I think that we really see kind of both sides of things. So sometimes we'll see that they are really scared to lie flat because they realize they hadn't done that in a really long time. So they continue to sleep in a recliner or propped up. And that can just add to difficulty with healing within the incision, increased swelling in the area, and then it makes it more uncomfortable when they then eventually try to lie fully flat. So that's one big reason why it's so important for early education. But then we see the other side where they were never taught it either. They weren't doing it in the hospital, but they go home and that's how their bed is and they do it. And then they realize how hard it is to get out of bed. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then, and we've actually had, um, we actually know people that have, they went home and they could not get out of bed and their caregiver was was calling us on the phone saying, I'm not sure what to do, how to help them get get out of the bed. And so it's, I, I would say we kind of see, see both things, which is why if this could just be standard of care, yeah. this, if we could just get yes. this to be <laughs> part of education for any person postpartum, I think we would see a great outcomes. Jenna and I are both lymphedema therapists. And so we talk a lot about positioning. And I mean, I've been doing this even since hip replacement surgery. I will, I'll talk to p patients about not resting in a recliner for very long, you know, after a major hip replacement for the reasons of, you know, just as Jenna said, after you're giving birth, you still have a period of time where the uterus is shrinking. You know, that it takes time for that fluid and and um, all of that fluid around the abdomen and the pelvis to really be reabsorbed back into the system. And so sleeping upright in a recliner or being in a position where it suits the baby, it's better for the baby because you can bond, you can nurse, you can care for the baby, but then that counteracts your lymphatic system because everything's following gravity will actually increase the amount of time that mom's will have leg swelling or pelvic swelling or issues even with bowel movements or all these things that are really sluggish. 
And so in the hospital, when you're just even focusing on positioning for sleeping, you're actually focusing on a lot of different activities that would be affected with just one intervention, right? And you're supporting the lymphatic system that also supports healing. Where there's a lot of fluid, muscles aren't really able to function at their best. So if you can focus on positioning, you can reduce swelling, you can improve pelvic floor function, abdominal muscle function, a lower extremity function, and then that individual will actually be able to walk more or tolerate more activity or conserve their energy and their body isn't working so hard against the fluid that's disproportionately lower in the body rather than throughout the body being circulated. I'd like to add on to that, Rebecca. That was That's such a good point. And and what you were talking about with regards to increased swelling, so that's going to happen after any any birth, whether surgical or not. And um, that also directly relates to the foods that they should be taking in. So nutrition itself, because food helps with overall recovery as well. And so certain things to try to avoid, we don't want a high sodium diet because there, there's already swelling that's that's going on. So trying to limit that, or maybe if they don't know what that means, if their plan when they go home, because maybe they don't have a great support system, they don't have a lot of meals you know, already ready to go, if they're just heating up uh, some of those frozen meals that you can buy in the freezer aisle, well, most of those tend to have a lot of sodium in them in order to just keep them preserved. And so that may be a good starter discussion as to, so what, what do your meals look like when you go home? Do, do have your friends or family set up a, a meal train? Is that something you're concerned about when you return home? Other things to try to avoid would be things like a high fat diet or lots of, um, you know, increased fat. We need some absolutely, but eating excessively fatty foods and high saturated fats, things like that is only going to limit the lymphatics system's ability to flush things out. The lymphatic system's already going to be on overdrive just to try to help the body heal, whether it was a cesarean section, a tear, or just a normal, you know, uh, birth, just a postpartum individual. And so trying to, if you are adding in excessive fats, well, our lymphatic system has to flush those out, but they're all, it's already working on overdrive. So trying to limit the amount of fatty food. So all the more reason to just sort of take note when you come in the room, what do you see them eating? Is this, do you need to have a discussion right then and there about how maybe those aren't the best choices or maybe they're great choices and are you going to continue that when you get home? Tell me what what it looks like for you in the next few weeks of when you return home. Do you have a plan? Um, I think that sleep, um, nutrition, positioning, anything to help with the lymphatic system in general, those are all crucial conversations to have early on. That really ties in with health management. and And when I think of like, when these hospital systems are trying to decide, well, should we just use PT, you know, as the main uh, rehab therapist seeing this population, or should we have OT? When when we're really getting into the nitty gritty of all these interventions, we're talking so much about health management or self care and all these things, just to ensure that this population isn't being discharged to heat up microwave meals. Like that's not really nutritional education. So just by asking a question, who's going to help you with meals, 
right? Now opens this whole door as to, well, what are they eating? What is their plan with that? What support do they have? And as an occupational therapist, can I now start to make referrals that can help this person for weeks to come and to ensure that they have a safe and successful discharge, depending on if they had a major abdominal surgery, cesarean section, or if they had a vaginal tear, that they're still going to be limited in terms of their capacity to do a lot for themselves. Can we call in family and friends and then coach them or educate them on how to communicate their needs? And so I think still it comes back to if, if you, you asked me, okay, who should be the primary care provider in this population from a rehab standpoint, it comes back to OT over and over again. Completely agree. Mm-hmm. I feel just so honored to hear you say that. And I, I think I was starting to think the direction of like, the problem here isn't what can we do as rehab? It's we have so many things to do as rehab. What's the most effective things we could choose? And hopefully we're both there because just so many things are happening in these couple days that are so important. They're literally going to set this child and this mom on this trajectory um, that's going to just have a huge impact. This is such a critical, critical window. And I was starting to think about the education piece, like, and already getting a little overwhelmed in my mind, like, I want these moms to know pelvic floor therapy exists. I want them to know about pain management. I want them to know, oh, if you're worried about any development with your child, there's early intervention. Like, there's all these education pieces that get dropped, in my opinion, and I see these acute care encounters as being an awesome opportunity for them. But I also don't want to overwhelm the the parents too. Like, what does effective education look like during this time? What's, I don't know, what's felt right when you two are doing this or what advice do you have for us around education? I'll take this one first. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that everything you just said is, is integral. I mean, yes, where do we, there's so much that we can say, but you bring up a good point. Are we going to overwhelm over overwhelm the the patient? And so the first thing I'll start off by saying is that almost every patient I've ever encountered within this population is so grateful. They're usually asking, "Can I take you home with me?" Or <laughs> "Why did I not get this before?" Yeah. So they're extremely interested and invested, and so it's they open the door for you, for you to just say, oh, well, if you thought this was really helpful, I want you to know that there is pelvic health therapists out there that can continue to help you, and I would recommend that you go as early as two weeks. I'm going to give you things to be working on in these next couple of weeks, but if you can get in with them in the next two to four weeks, they can continue to progress and make sure that you're healing in the correct way, the way that you want to, to achieve the goals that that are important to you. And so that is usually, it's one of the easiest ways to to get that in. If they aren't so lovey-dovey, most of them are though, I will I will admit that. But if they you know, haven't made any, any ways to open the door. I open the door myself. I'll sort of crack it open and, and just say, even if things are going very well and they're understanding everything, all of the signs are looking good. I don't see any red flags. They have a great support system. Let's think of like the perfect scenario and they match every single perfect situation. I still want them to know if you start to notice 
any of these things, or if you're starting to feel overwhelmed, or if you're starting to feel that it's just becoming too much, or you're starting to, um, it's more difficult for you to do just some of your, your normal routine that you are used to doing or that you want to get back to doing, pelvic health therapy exists. And here are some resources within the area. I, I have to echo what Jenna just said. The, if the, you allow your patients to guide the treatment, they won't feel overwhelmed because it's something that they specifically asked for. And so the, one of the first things we'll, we'll get is this question is, well, what do I focus on when there's so much, right? And so the more that you can empower someone to be more autonomous with their health, we, we often will um, teach therapists to take vital signs with this population. Well, instead of taking vital signs and just documenting, well, this person's blood pressure, you know, skyrocketed after we were just standing at the sink and they were brushing their teeth after they lost maybe a significant amount of blood after birth. Instead of just documenting and just leaving it at that, if you then make the whole session and focus it on that individual learning how to take their own vital signs learning how to monitor their response to activity, and then just really having them be successful at that one thing, that empowers them to then take that into all of the different activities that they'll be doing around the house. You know, we just spent, you know, quite a lot of time talking about nutrition. Well, then that will almost give them the support that they need, the encouragement, the sense of self-efficacy of, of accomplishing that they're able to monitor how their own body is responding to just everyday activities, and they'll know to ask for help. Now you've empowered them to communicate with their family and friends. Now you've empowered them to ask if maybe the person who's coming over to see their baby can bring a meal or two or clean up or do things to help them, right? Because they are now aware that their blood pressure increases with just small bouts of activity, right? And so I say, you know, to therapists, you're a department store, you're a mall. I'm coming in for one thing, not coming in for the whole mall. You can give me everything, but right now my mind is focused on this one thing. So meet me where I am and then I'll know, oh, if I need something else, you're the person I want to come back to or you're the profession that I want on my team during my postpartum recovery for the next 12 months. And so now as an acute care therapist, you have opened up this whole field that um, is accessible. We, we talk about pelvic health therapy a lot, but they're not accessible during the first six weeks. During the first six weeks, moms are generally typically on their own until their OB checks them off and says, you can see pelvic health therapy now. If we're actually catching these individuals so early on in the hospital, we're now opening this whole zero to six week gap for therapy to be involved sooner, or maybe an occupational therapist to do a home visit and help that individual now navigate this new environment with the new uh, ADLs and tasks involving their newborn. And so I think acute care therapists, they don't have to shoulder everything. They just have to show this individual that they're in charge and they're in control, and now they have options on who to ask for for help. Hmm. I just see such a, yeah, I see such a, through line in what you're saying, if you start with that first question um, that you said, how are you doing today? And you get to the heart of what's going on and you co-create goals. And that is just going to lead you so naturally to, of this mall of choices, what's the most important thing for us to do? And then going to the next thing when that thing is taken care of. And 
yeah, that zero to six weeks at home that I'm just going to have to chew on that for a long time because I'm just like, wow, what the, that is the biggest missed opportunity to not be having services during that time. Um, and that just feels reflective of just our healthcare. We're just missing these huge windows of opportunity. So yeah, I'm going to have to be thinking about that. In the paper, yeah, we did. We focused on the paper, the commentary, uh, zero to six weeks specifically, because over 57% of maternal uh, deaths that were occurring actually occurred before six weeks postpartum. 57%. Like when you just even sit and chew on that, and we as pelvic health therapists, I have to speak for myself, not Jenna, she's an acute care therapist, but my practice in the outpatient world I was missing 57% of, of, of deaths of when they occurred, this huge window. And so for me, it was a no-brainer to start in acute care where 98% of births occur. Well, that's one of the first sentences of the con- uh, commentary where most of our pop- patient populations who are vulnerable are going to be. And I had to be honest with myself. You know, my community of, of women of color right, who are giving birth in this country, we know the statistics. We don't want to be the statistic. And so where do we meet that community where they are? And I had to be honest that as an outpatient pelvic health therapist, I was not seeing nearly as many women of color in outpatient pelvic health as I saw in the hospital around the time they gave birth and around the time that they had major pelvic surgery, like a hysterectomy or a hysterectomy, cesarean hysterectomy, which is the removal of the uterus at the time of birth. And that could be expected or unexpected after postpartum hemorrhage. And so I had to really focus on, well, where could I actually help this population, this specific population, which we know is two to three times more likely to die just by the color of their skin, just because of the color of their skin. And so I knew that if I could actually focus the attention on how are you 24 to 48 hours after they gave birth, I would have a huge potential of helping them before they were to leave home and maybe be lost in the healthcare system again. Mm-hmm. So true. In this like complex world, you two have zeroed in on something so important. I'm completely sold on the importance of this work. If I'm a listener, and let's say I'm a cute care therapist already. That's not step number one. Everyone become a cute care therapist. But if you are one, <laughs> if you are one, what's like the next three steps you do if you want to become engaged in this work? Do you do person professional development first? Do you march into your CEO? Do you go talk to your nursing friends? What do you do? What's the what's the one, two, three steps? Well, my one, two, three, the, the recommendation I would give is really start with your rehab team first. So if you're already, you're, you read the commentary and you said, I can do this. This is in my wheelhouse. Maybe they felt just like Sarah, where they were kind of like, how have I missed this population? How have we just ignored this entire unit on the hospital uh, it, or within the hospital? So start with your rehab team. So that's that includes your manager, um, but also your colleagues. Because as Rebecca mentioned earlier, it's really hard to do this by yourself. So having others on the team so that you don't have to work seven days a week, because no one does. No one works seven days a week in the hospital. You need others to cover the that floor as well 
So start there. You can give in-services. You can literally print out this article, give it to your manager and say, so why are we not doing this? Look at how beneficial we would be. We can save the hospital money and help more people. Once that happens, I think the second step would be to meet with the obstetric maternal care team. So that includes nurses, physicians, the nurse practitioners, and your manager will help you with this. So that's sort of their wheelhouse to to understand who is involved in all of the different departments and the different um, areas. And so that's something that you and your manager can work together and whether that is part of their there's many different um, maternal care small meetings that take place so they may have a quarterly meeting they could have a monthly meeting so make your presence known at one of those and then of course last but not least getting the patient involved so getting in that room and just letting them know what can you offer what can you bring them and if they say yeah I want that. I want you to address all of those things. I want you to help me go back to who I, who I was before. I now either have a new role, a new identity, a new role that I don't know how to navigate, or I'm scared of losing my other parts of me, my other identities. And how do I hold on to those as I navigate this additional role? And so please help me. If they are on board, I guarantee it. The, if they request you, the MD will put that order in. Mm-hmm. And I'll add to Jenna, I have thought about this a lot because I, I had to think about the order that I did things, you know, when we were actually starting this program in, in one of the largest hospital systems, primarily for this population um, in Houston, Texas, in the Texas Medical Center. And I think we followed that order precisely. Jenna was right on on point, like going to the uh, our management and rehab, and then going to the maternal care team, asking the nurses what would be beneficial. What are patients um, that you see, you know, struggling? What do you think that they need, or, or how could we help? And then going to the patient third. The only thing I would add with what Jenna was saying is when you have a manager that's supportive, if you're able to first approach them. Not in in terms of I want to, you know, give my resources to this population that could actually already unearth, if you will, for lack of a better term, some barriers that you're not ready for. But if you could ask just for time, time to observe on the maternal care unit, that has probably been the most powerful point that I really want to get across to our listeners today. If you can set aside time to observe just normal maternity care follow a nurse for a day, and this is really common on the maternal care unit in both hospitals that I worked with, we had nurses who were just having physicians on board and observe with them, having other care providers on board and observe with them. We're no different as the rehab care team. We're not used to this uh, population. We're not used to the unit and how it runs. But if you can have time, dedicated time, maybe your own time outside of your working hours, if you have that capacity, to just observe on this unit, you will see a lot more than to take care, take back to your rehab team and then offer a, an in-service to your own colleagues about abdominal surgery care. And it can cover the general population, but then include the cesarean section population. And it just gives you now this, this support that Jenna was talking about that you're now building before you then go to the maternal care team and offer your services or offer how you can help. 
because if you go at this alone, you're going to get overwhelmed very quickly. You know, she, she just touched on that. So for me, the first step would be not only approaching your rehab director or your rehab manager, but it would just be getting time to observe how care is given on the, these units, especially with our high-risk pregnancy um, patient population and just seeing how inactive they are while they're growing a baby and what, while their muscles are not being used to their full potential and while they're in the hospital, which does all kinds of things to their mental health. And just observing these populations as they are will give you the insight that you need as an acute care therapist on what you should focus on. Hmm. That's super helpful. And as I'm hearing you speak, I'm just like, I am so thankful that you two are leaders of this movement. And I see why it has skyrocketed so quickly. I think you have this incredibly needed voice where you are bringing us all together on this movement. Like as an OT, I feel just as included and uplifted in this movement as my PT colleagues and as the rest of the whole team. And I think we needed someone to call us into that. And most importantly, because that's what our patients need. Like this is such important, complex time. It needs all of us. It needs leaders like you who are calling all of us to show up with our best selves. You guys are leading or are sparking this movement. What are your goals for it? And have they changed since you started? It started so personally for both of you. What's, yeah, what's the future looking like? I'll take it first. Well, I would say one of, one of my major goals is let's keep the movement going first of all, because I really appreciate what you're saying, Sarah, that, that, you know, we're starting this great movement, but it just still does not feel like we've even scratched the surface. There are still, I mean, how many hospitals offer this after birth and how many of them do it consistently is the other piece. And so we, this movement needs to continue. We need, we need others to jump on board, see the problem, but then also realize that there are answers, there are solutions. I think it's difficult if we focus only on the problems, we actually need to be looking at, well, how do we fix that? What's the future look like? And the future is in occupational therapists. Seriously. They, this is, if, if one discipline is going to be working with this population, Rebecca and I wholeheartedly agree that it should be occupational therapy. Absolutely. And so let's keep it going. Let's keep the movement going. Uh, my, personal, my personal goal with this movement is that every individual, whether they're a high-risk pregnancy and postpartum, will receive a PT or an OT consult while they're in the hospital, so before they go home. And that's I think that mission has sort of stayed true. So that that's sort of been that the initial drive of this movement and that piece of it has remained constant. But I would say that some parts of it have absolutely changed because the more that we've been seeing this population, the more we've been working with other PTs and OTs across the country that are trying to start this themselves, it's opened our eyes to additional areas and different things that that need to be addressed. And there's a, there's a whole other area that we haven't talked too much about during this podcast, but there are individuals that that have perinatal loss. And that is still very much a population that needs 
services. The, absolutely. And there's many different different ways that, that that could have happened. Maybe it was a high-risk pregnancy. Maybe they had to go emergent cesarean section. Maybe they had a natural delivery and something just happened afterwards. And so there is a, a huge mental health component associated to that as well as just postpartum recovery. And so they're having to navigate these two very large hurdles. And for them to not have therapy services, particularly occupational therapy, it's a disservice to them. Yeah, adding to that, I am so thankful, Jenna, that you brought that up um, with perinatal loss, because I, I do, I speak about the maternal health population, and we talk about newborn care. And then I have to admit, I mean, a lot of this population that you know, I personally have treated were those individuals who were not going home with with a baby, and they had lost their baby in the hospital, and I'm in the room, and the baby is in the cooling bassinet, and so the the energy in that room it was just so unique uh, to this population. It's, I I think that for me, where I see this movement going is for basic fundamental care in the form of of rehabilitation and recovery driven services to just be accessible to everyone. I think when initially we were writing this paper, we were just focusing on the how and the what, and we're very much shifting and focusing on the why, because I think when you get down to the heart of it, there's a, it's a quote that I love, and, and it actually has a story uh, behind it, but it talks about the observer of the first signs of civilization, um, actually observed from from archaeology, from a from a dig of person who had had a femur that was fractured, that was healed, and that was like the first sign of civilization. I believe that the the observer was uh, the last name was Mead, and so Mead observed was this fractured femur that had been healed, and what she discovered was that in times past, most animals, if you will, would have left the other animal to, to die because they didn't have the resources, right? Or they didn't have the capacity or, or civilization, if you will, to care for some someone that was left behind. But then now when you started seeing human civilization develop, we now had the tools to care for those of us who were injured. And when I think of the maternal population, I think of a mom after a major abdominal surgery not being given resources to help them heal, to help them go home, to help them care for their baby better. And I dare say that's signs of uncivilization. That's signs of us regressing. And so I feel like for the future, what this means is that we will start showing acts that any person deserves who we want to treat with dignity, right? With basic dignity and care is that we support moms who are the cornerstone of our community. And from the World Health Organization perspective, who's actually indicative, the health of the mother and infant of a population is indicative of the whole health of the, that population. And so I say this is actually basic, fundamental, foundational. I want us to move from that and have this just be standard so that we could really start focusing on 
now what makes this population thrive, not just survive, but really thrive during their postpartum recovery and really address a lot of the issues that is affecting the mental health of our populations and other things that we see more downstream because this upstream care was not provided. Mm-hmm. You both have given us so much to think about today. I just keep thinking that if we as therapists have the courage to ask, how can we help this postpartum population just buckle up for a lifetime of learning? Because there is so much to learn and take in and on like an assessment and treatment level, but like you're saying, like on who are we as a society and how is that indicated in this care that we're providing at this just incredibly critical window? I wish we could keep talking forever. I think I might have to have you both back on. Yay. But yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for this time today. This has just been so incredible. And I'm just really excited for the follow-up and the continued conversations. Thank you so much for having us, Sarah. This was a great experience and looking forward to continuing the conversation. Same here. Thank you, Sarah. Wow, you all, the phrase that was just top of mind for me after this interview was just ripple effect. So many parents and infants could be helped by programs like the ones we talked about today. We are going to be linking to related resources for you on our podcast page. And I'll do my best to spotlight the obstetric rehab programs that have gotten off the ground around the United States. If you are an acute care therapist who is interested in maternal health and pelvic health, I encourage you to tag yourself as such on our OT directory. I think it is critical that as this movement builds that we are able to find each other. And if you are interested in earning a CEU certificate for your time today, what you are going to do next is head to otpotential.com and either sign in or sign up for the OT Potential Club. Once you are in there, you can take a five question test. And when you pass, we will generate a certificate for your time today. As always, I wanna thank you so much for joining us today. I hope this podcast helps keep you informed and inspired as an OT professional. Take care and we'll talk next time.